0: Ayushi Mona and you're listening to India Booked, a podcast where we lean into the idea of India through its literature and we speak to authors who bring this to life. Hello everyone, I am Ayushi Mona, your host on India Booked, a podcast where we lean into the idea of India through its literature. Today we're discussing Twilight in a Knotted World, uh, which is historical fiction set in the early 19th century in India. It's written by Siddharth, who joins us today. Siddharth Sharma is an author, historian, a journalist. His debut novel, uh, The Grasshoppers Run, received the Sahitya Academy Award, as well as the Crossword Book Award for children's literature. Um, even if you're not a child, it's a book worth exploring. And and across Facebook book groups, you will continuously see people uh, jostling Siddharth, or asking for a sequel to this. Siddharth's second book um, and his second novel was Year of the Weeds, which received the Neve Book Award and the 10th Anniversary Special Award at the KLF. His most recent non-fiction book has been Carpenters and Kings, which is a comprehensive history of Western Christianity in India. It's quite an interesting spectrum of things that Siddharth's, you know, cradling, whether it's writing historical fiction or children's literature, He's a former investigative journalist. Uh, he's uh, covered insurgency, crime, law, foreign affairs and was very recently, uh, till recently assistant editor with TOI in New Delhi. But currently he's based in Toronto. Uh, welcome to the show, Siddharth. And it's fantastic to have you with us.
1: Hi, Ayushi. I'm very happy to be here and a big hello to all the listeners of India Booked. I look forward to our conversation.
0: So, Siddharth, uh, let's begin with a blurb, right? Uh, the book starts under uh, with this premise that the soil of central India hides more than the bones of long-dead giants. And the blurb pulls out saying that, you know, the East India Company is a master of almost the subcontinent, but real power is with the crown. And then there is this whole game of cat and mouse with Captain Sleeman, and, there, and there's this action-packed, um, you know, series of events that happens in, in Jabalpur district. And there's a certain involvement with Calcutta. And you literally transport us to a 19th century India. My first question to you is, uh, why did you choose to write about the topic? Of course, uh, I, I do understand your affiliation as a historian, but why, you know, this particular niche um, within the... Sp- of historical fiction that you could
1: have written right thank you Ayushi. that's that's actually a very interesting question and this goes to the root of why i decided to write this story uh, there are many things which are connected to this uh, you know the thugs mythos as one may call it uh, one reason i wanted to write it is it's been it's been written about in fiction you know you find it in cinema uh, and various places uh, but there's you know it's a large and complex topic and uh, while the non-fiction works on the Thugs or the fasigars, the Stranglers, the non-fiction works are very, you know, of, of very high quality by several noted scholars. In terms of fiction, uh, well, I was a little disappointed with the kind of works that exist about uh, this. So, I wanted to write a story of my own about it. That's one reason. The other reason is most of the central characters in the book, including Sleeman, some of the Fasigars uh, some of their contemporaries—they—they are all very interesting people. They had—they had, they had uh, very complex lives, you know. They had multiple interests. Lehman himself was an archaeologist. He was a philologist. He was interested in India's culture. He, he did a lot of pioneering work in various fields, and of course, he was an administrator as well. Uh, and he wrote quite a bit, you know. There are several books by him which are still around. So. Uh, there are several aspects to these people that I wanted to explore. I also wanted to talk about the Orientalists, you know, people like James Princep or or, or Horace Wilson, whose, you know, their works about India were the beginning of our understanding of ourselves. So these are all very interesting characters in nonfiction and otherwise. So I thought to write a fictional story about them would be a good exercise in historical fiction. The third and, and equally important reason is uh, modern India owes a lot this period, the early 19th century. So, you know, a lot of our systems are inherited from uh, that period. I mean, that, that's where all this begins. Uh, our police apparatus, law enforcement, the legal system, bureaucracy, uh, even uh, ways of, uh, of looking at the people, for instance, our understanding of caste, uh, census. Uh, so all these things uh, began Effectively from that period, you know. So I thought I'd, I'd talk about this period. I talk about these people, and I'd I'd also explore how India was, or rather, modern India was being formed. So all of these went into the story
0: because I think uh, you know um, we, you mentioned Princep, right? Like so now, when you are say writing about a scholar who say as brilliant as James Princep, what is the level of granularity, right? And and this is a question, uh, pandering more to a curiosity from, say, a writer's perspective than the reader's. How do you know what is the extent of research that you, say, need to get into to get these nuances right? Because, of course, there is a, uh, there is a rigorous research that you do in terms of just getting the period right. But when, say, somebody has, uh, you know, when somebody is a linguist or a metallurgist uh, or an astronomer, how do you ensure that you know nuggets of what they do professionally to tie in into your story in terms of like a plot loophole or an information that they give someone?
1: Right. So that's where the work of a historian and, and the work of a historical fiction writer intersect. Now, a historian's job is, I mean, among many other things, is to look at a certain period in history and to give a clear, clearer picture about it isn't it? A historical fiction writer's job is slightly different, that granularity which you're talking about, that one. So, you know, these these historical people, these events, the idea is to bring them to life with a kind of immediacy, you know, to fill them up, to make them more than two-dimensional cardboard cutouts, right? So, it's not just about uh, people and events and dates and names and places, but also about the lived experiences, their inner thoughts and other aspects of a person's life that's where fiction comes in so you get a very good idea about James Pincep's interests his his scholarly pursuits from his works from his numerous notable contributions as you mentioned to fill up his personality or to, or to talk about his inner thoughts or, or to talk about the things that he did otherwise that requires a certain kind of engagement with him and of course you need to imagine what he must have been thinking about because a lot of a of a person's lived experience do not enter the historical record, even of famous people, right? You have some very good examples of very well-known people with numerous biographies written about them. And yet, you know, sometimes you feel that their inner thoughts, their their inner lives are missing from the record, because mainly because, you know, history does not deal with these things. That's where a fiction writer comes in. So a lot of it has to do with me, imagining how life must have been from his eyes and that's not such a difficult task because james Princep, you know he's a he's a personality type he's exceptionally brilliant he doesn't miss things and clearly he's not he's not very good at small talk for instance so these aspects of his personality are not that uncommon it's there in in almost uh, all really brilliant people so you create that kind of character for the story and that's how you fill up the gaps
0: Were you, um, you know, when when you say, are writing historical fiction, right, uh, were you dismayed at the lack of historical fiction that sort of exists for, um, you know, I mean, of course, say, internationally, right, you have, like, so much written about, in popular imagination of historical fiction, something like, say, Philippa Gregory, right? or you have so much Hilary Mantle exactly I'm just trying to think that not even just say through literature but also literary adaptations on screen right are numerous which is not the case for us right most very much to this dynamic between like a Gandhi and a Bhagat Singh aspect that 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 is continuously talked about twisted around or whatever right but a lot of other things happen right for instance um, there's very little in by way of literature or cinema about Anglo-Indians or the in, interaction of uh, Englishmen uh, with Indians beyond the spectrum of, you know, being the white sahab, right? I mean, a movie like Lagan perhaps showed it in, in your book, a character like Hudson, right? How about this aspect, Siddharth? And, and of course, I think I'm sort of extending and building on what you said about the inner lives of people, right? So just as uh, there were people who were gods, there were sympathizers, and, and, and there's a whole dynamic of being the conquered versus the conqueror. Mm-hmm. But for you, um, from, for, from a perspective of this book, or in the general scheme of things, how did you want to pen down the interaction between the British and the Indian? Because obviously there's the fancied problem but but there are other aspects also of how the characters are engaging uh, and then living with this country uh that you know they that they've come um to uh
1: so uh if we if we go back to what you asked about historical fiction now now one of the things you'll find in really good works of historical fiction is the writers are if not uh you know professional historians that is academics uh, at least they have, uh, they have an extensive grounding in the subject. Good historical fiction writing is not possible unless one has a good grounding in history, or at least that, that aspect of history or that subject or that topic, because it has to do with research, it has to do with familiarity, it has to do with, with knowing the broad picture, the larger picture. One problem in India has been the good historians, that is the academics, do not write historical fiction uh, for various reasons. Maybe they choose not to write it. Maybe they don't feel inclined uh, to take to fiction because for them, you know, nonfiction is satisfying enough. Whatever, it's their choice, right? The problem is uh, the few pieces of historical fiction that you find are or might have been written by people who might not necessarily have a thorough grounding in the subject, in which case, they might not have access to primary sources or have a thorough understanding of the subject to begin with. For instance, if somebody is writing a fictional story based in the Mughal period or in the Middle Ages, and that person does not know Persian or early Urdu, it's very difficult for that person to conduct research in primary sources. So when that rigor does not exist, the the basic framework of your story is weak. That's, That's one of the problems with historical fiction. That you will not find in good works of historical fiction. Hilary Mantel, as you mentioned, is a very good example. She knows her subject very well. You know, she knows it as well as a professional historian, as an academic. And therefore, when she writes fiction, her extensive knowledge of the subject comes into play. Now, in my case, I have to clarify: my background is not either in Indian history or in the colonial period. But I, you know, my background is in, in medieval European history. But I, I do have some uh, degree of familiarity with the colonial period. So it helps me do research in terms of primary sources. So it, it does help one. That's the, the, the process. The second thing that you mentioned, and I'm really glad you did, because this is a very important point. In India, in the popular, in the, uh, popular imagination, the popular discourse, the colonial period is mainly about binaries. right? Uh, so you have uh, the colonizer versus the colonized and the colonizer is usually depicted in extreme terms in 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 the sense that you know the, as you mentioned the bigots are the 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 people who uh, you know exploited and looted the yeah people. because
0: I, you know for the life of me i can't even remember like a visual depiction Right of a colonizer who is not like a bristling white man with a moustache in an army uniform. But they came in all forms and shapes and sizes, right? From working class people to spouses to, uh, you know, portly older um, uh, traders, right?
1: Yeah, yeah, there were all, all sorts of people. And, and broadly, the way I see it, you can divide them into three kinds of people, apart from the class and the gender distinctions. The, the first kind are the bigots and uh, the exploiters. Okay. The second kind were the apparatchiks, the, you know, the bureaucrats, the people who, who came, did a job, went back. So uh, in the first case, there, there was a marginal kind of engagement with India, mainly in the form of an exploited piece of uh, you know, a, a property, you could say. Then uh, the apparatchiks or the bureaucrats merely treated India in the way that bureaucrats treat any piece of land or people. Uh, as, as statistics or as things to be administered in a cold-blooded kind of manner. But then you have the third and and demo, you know uh, statistically the smallest group, which is people who actively engaged with India uh, objectively, sometimes with love, but mainly with a great deal of curiosity and uh, you know a, a, a great deal of objectivity. Sleeman belongs to this category. most of the early Orientalists belong to this category. Uh, You know, people like Jim Corbett, for instance. Of course, Corbett uh, is a slightly uh, different case. But uh, there were a lot of British people who lived and died in India, right? They were also a part of this. So the problem, as you mentioned, is nuance. When we look at historical characters or events as binaries, we tend to forget that there is very little black and white in history. There is always, you know, shades of gray. And it is these shades of gray that get lost when there isn't enough discussion about them. Um, for instance, uh, if you if you invert the topic to the colonized instead of the colonizers, you will see that the colonial experience was different for different kinds of people. The, the princelings, the noblemen, or the ex-noblemen, whatever you call them, then the emerging middle class, the, the early English-speaking elites benefited from British rule. So when they say that the colonial period was exploitative, people tend to ignore the fact that there were a lot of Indians who actually benefited from the colonial period. So who did not benefit? Uh, Mostly it was uh, the lower castes, the Dalits, Adivasis, uh, women, of course, have been exploited throughout history. So I don't even need to mention that. So the the colonial experience was different for the colonized in many different ways. So these nuances, these grey areas, tend to be lost if you look at uh, things only in terms of sharp binaries, and that is something that we need to start talking about. Yeah, so that's one of the things that I've tried to do here. And you mentioned the working classes; that's very, very important because among the colonizers also, the working classes didn't benefit, right? The British working classes who came to India during the colonial period didn't make a lot of money. They just barely survived. Most of them lived in terrible conditions. They went back home. Their families lived in equally terrible conditions back home. So that never changed.
0: Yeah, but you know, if Bazaar history is to be believed. Every Britisher who ever came to India uh, went with like a, a Kohinoor in one hand and a bunch of peacock leaves. Yeah,
1: that's quite an image. I will remember that. <laughs> yeah.
0: But of course, I, I'm not saying that that. I'm not taking away anything from the kind of exploitation of uh, that the British did and, and the rampaging um, of all Commonwealth nations. Uh, so that I think the next thing I I really uh, was very curious about is is the women right in the book and and of course another tendency with historical fiction sometimes right and often largely because it's. Uh, caters to royalty or people in power, right? Because those are the kind of narratives that we find exciting to read, right? And and we often don't really um, read off women uh, until unless, you know, they, there's like some, there's a love affair or there is, you know, like in the, in the capacity, which is like either a lover or a mother or something like that, right? Or a queen or, or along those lines. But but I, think I found M- M- uh, Slim Sleeman a very fascinating character. So uh, and and she has such refined taste and, and you know and there's a certain I mean not a certain anger there's a definite resentment that she has about how women are being treated and and her contempt etc is very obvious and and so is the fact that she has an interest in the in a lot of things right because again the image that we tend to have of colonial women is that they all wear gowns and and um and they host events and tea parties. Tell us a little bit about Mellie Sleeman and then writing a woman um, uh, character as well as how she sort of comes to, uh, you know, comes into play in in the context of the Fancy Girls.
1: Right. Uh, So I'll talk about Amelie Sleeman and and also about the two other major women characters in the novel because they are all, you know, in many ways they're connected, even though they never meet in the story. So Amelie is a historical character. Uh, The background that I've given in the novel is actually what she was. She was a daughter of a French nobleman who was dispossessed during the French Revolution. Uh, So he he fled from France with nothing, you know, and uh, then he reestablished himself. Ultimately, uh, he lived and died in Mauritius. He was a plantation owner. Amelie uh, came to India when she was in her late teens. She lived in Calcutta with you know, the, the posh set. And then she got bored with them. And she went traveling in central India. She met Sleeman. She liked him. And they got married. Like most other uh, women from the colonial period, uh, she doesn't get mentioned much. Uh, this is one of the problems that I have with Sleeman. Because as she mentions in the book herself, he doesn't notice women. Right. Because uh, it's not that he's a misogynist, it's just that he comes from a generation which does not really think about women. Yeah. So beyond a point, there isn't much of a serious engagement with women. Although he is concerned about women's rights, he was one of the first administrators in Central India to ban Sati, before Sati was banned throughout the country. But that, you know, that, that serious kind of engagement, does not exist. Uh, so he does not write much about her in his books. And I felt that that was a, a lacuna, that was uh, you know, a gap that needed to be addressed. So I, uh, I I worked on Amelie's character for the novel, as I worked with the other women's characters. I tend to spend more time working on the women's characters in my uh, fiction, because as a man, I need to be really careful about how I portray women. Yeah, certainly uh, I put more work into it than I do in most of my other characters. Uh, so Amelie had a lot of interest, certainly. We just don't know much about them. We know that she assisted her husband in his investigation. We know that she was present at the exhumation of several mass graves. And uh, we know that she worked with him in, in translating the, the code language of the Fancikars. Uh, but beyond that, the record is silent on her, as expected. So I had to fill up that uh, that gap. So I I worked on her. certainly a, a very intelligent, a very perceptive woman. A lot, uh, some of her anger, some of the anger that I have portrayed uh, her feeling, is is actually drawn from early feminist literature, including from from you know reading between the lines of Wollstonecraft and some of her intellectual successors. So um, the views that she expresses are not that uncommon among. Uh, 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 European women of the early 19th century. In the Victorian period, it changes a little bit, it becomes a little muted. But uh, you know, in the the immediate pre-Victorian period, uh, it was a slightly more gender equal kind of domestic arrangement. So I have tried to show that as well. Uh, The other two women characters are also interesting, if I may talk about them a little bit. So. One of them, uh, and again, both of them are historical characters. One of them is a Brahmin widow. Sliman met, and after her her husband passed away, she insisted on committing sati. So, And he could not prevent her from doing that because she said, if you do not allow me to commit sati, I will kill myself through other means. In either case, I'm going to kill myself. So, you know, he could not prevent her from uh, killing herself. And uh, he, he entered that in the, in the record, you know, but description of the conversation is, is very bare in the sense that partly he felt out, um, you know, perhaps out of sympathy for her predicament. He did not give full details of their conversation. So I had, to Im- I had to imagine a lot of it. I had to reconstruct the conversation between them to understand the pain that she was uh, feeling, you know. Because what what she says, and and no spoilers here for the listeners. I will try my best not to give spoilers. But she says that, you know, Sati has been banned. But what happens to the widows afterwards? You know, what kind of a life can they look forward to? Because there isn't much else that they can do. So, you know, these are some of the problems that uh, Indian women have to face. And uh, this is what through her I have tried to show. The third woman, uh, a third important female voice in the story is that of Kudsiya Begum, who was the Nawab of and very interesting character. She was the first of four generations of women rulers. Uh, this is unprecedented in South Asian history, probably unprecedented anywhere else in the world. Uh, so in no other Islamic polity will you find four successive women rulers who uh, you know, governed with uh, near absolute power. So she was very remarkable that way after her husband died under very tragic circumstances in, in an accident she took over and she ruled despite the disapproval of uh, you know, other men of the household and of the Qazis. So she was very good at politics. She was very good at handling the British and the Qazis. And she ruled very well. Bhopal was doing very well in her time. A woman in the public sphere ruling as an equal to men and in fact doing a far better job of it, which is not surprising. I wanted to portray her character. So these are the three women characters that you'll find in the novel. And they show different aspects of, uh, you know, uh, gender relations in the early 19th century.
0: Interesting. So that, in fact, I, this, uh, I actually wanted to ask uh, you a separate question on the Sati piece. And I'm glad that, you know, you sort of woven, uh this and then you spoke about it. For me, I, 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 and I think that, you know, uh, what, and, and this was the first book, uh, you know, that I'd read by you. And what I I really do love the way you write. However, um, you know, I actually, and this is, uh, I don't know, uh, a note to your publisher, maybe. I think the book can be very much, you know, a young adult and a new adult book. And um, I know, of course, it's not historical fiction. But I think, like, more younger people, right, teens, late teens, perhaps, right, should read books like these because, uh, I mean, because they just grow out of school reading a uh, a very dry and brittle version of history which tells you, oh, this is when the Quit India movement happened, this is what was done under Swadeshi, right? Um, and, and Central India, of course, is never spoken of. So you have your Mughals and, and occasionally you'll have passing mention of your Cholas, uh, etc. And I mean, before uh, uh, we started speaking, I had um, uh, a gentleman named Vikramjit Singh Ruparai who's written a book on the Baulis of North India. He has been working on compiling a lot of historical data. And and, you know, I asked him that, you know, Vikram um, Ji, tell me uh, uh, what, you know, tell me a little more about these things I don't know about, like, say, the Chola Kingdom, because all I ever grew up reading about was Akbar, Babar, Humayu, Shah Jahan, you know. And, and later, of course, uh, uh, you know, the whole piece around uh, the freedom uh, movement. Uh, not saying that those aren't critical aspects, those um, that we should not be reading about, but there's so many of these so voices and stories we never hear about right nobody ever says speaks about a birsa punda so i think i actually think that maybe your publisher should <laughs> should push it to a lot of uh, people in their early 20s or uh, you know uh, in, in college and even high school because to me a lot of this could be very very interesting for somebody in in that age
1: yeah. Thank you, Aishi. I think that's a very good idea. I mean, I'd be happy if they read it. My, I write books for, you know, meant for everyone. So, uh, I hope they take it up. That'd be great.
0: I have a question. And you know, Siddharth, uh, um, uh, which is more from a, a writer's POV, right? How do you uh, decide, right? For instance, the book and the way it stands is takes a slightly literary route, right? Um, it's not. It's not one. It's a lot of context setting. It's a lot of conversation. It's very driven by dialogue. Right. Uh, So it's it's a series of events. Right. It's not a narrative with, you know, uh, an explosion happens here. Someone was found hanging here. and, And there's, I mean, of course, elements of society. And, and the story gets driven. and I am just trying to say this in as many ambiguous words as possible without.
1: No, no, not at all. The explosions part is actually quite interesting. Maybe I should have done a Michael Bake somewhere in the middle.
0: Yeah, so for me, right, and, and, and probably um, while I really enjoyed reading, reading the book and I loved every single aspect of the historical element it touched, and, and maybe because I'm just used to reading maybe racier historical fiction. I think, I, I think I'll put it that way, uh, that I, I was kind of hoping for something which would be a little racier in pieces, which doesn't take away from the fact that, one, that this was great to read. It was eloquently written. It had had extremely well-constructed sentences. It had great character. It had good detailing, but not obnoxious amount of detailing that you're just reading, detailing, and not the story. So, in in every way that a book is meant to be enjoyable, it was enjoyable to me. But I think some of this is my again my own personal bias, right? Because every every book is a reader's own personal experience, right? Which is why some people love Lord of the Rings, some people hate it. And and for me, uh I I think I just ha- like cheap thrill life too much so I I would have loved this if this was a little racier, but but it still is, is a great read and I I I think uh, one of the uh, the best written books that I have read sort of the subject matter also that you're dealing with, which is far more complex than of course you know writing something which is in the here and now.
1: Right. Thank you. Uh, so uh, talking about the racy part, you know, one of the reasons that I mentioned, one of the reasons for writing this book is uh, some of the existing works on the stranglers of India have had this problem of misrepresentation, or actually misrepresentation is a very strong word. Uh, a problem of, uh, you know, a, a kind of, you know, the, the problem was in representing uh, both the thugs and the imperial officials. If you look back to the, the book which started this whole trend, you know the, the book which established the thugs in the popular imagination, a book called Confessions of a Thug by Philip Meadows Taylor. So now that's racy. All right. Uh, that, you know, there, there, there is a certain exoticization of characters, uh, a certain uh, a, a way of looking at India, a certain way of looking at the stranglers. And most of it was not historically accurate because the man who wrote it, was not directly associated with the campaign against the the fancy Girls. Philip Meadows Taylor he made a lot of claims about himself, most of which were not true. But uh, so his his book is, is certainly entertaining, but it is it is a historical. Now I wanted to address problems like that, and therefore at the expense of of uh, you know removing or not dealing with some of the the more uh, you know exotic aspects of the story i wanted to talk about people and uh, you know uh, uh, characters motivations inner lives and uh, the, the larger socio cultural uh, uh, milieu rather than the you know the, the more fantastic aspects of this problem so that's why if you see there are very few actual crimes that happen on stage in the story there is very little actual violence that happens on stage most of it is referred or indicated you know even even the one major action scene that supposedly takes place towards the end uh, involving uh sleeman and another fellow again no spoilers
0: <laughs> I, I i you know it's so difficult to talk without giving away spoilers. yeah i know yeah
1: yeah that's what <laughs> i have to really watch my words but uh, so even that takes place off stage only the the the, the set uh you know the the Ambience is described. That's evening. That you know the lamps have been lit, and then this fellow turns up. If you recall the passage that I'm talking about, so I have I have mainly tried to, you know, uh, it's a crime novel, but it talks about the why of uh, crime rather than the who done it aspect of it. It is a detective story, but I, 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 I'm trying to deal with motivations and background here rather than with the actual crime because you know actual crime basically the actual crime is a few guys driven because of poverty and other reasons they go out and massacre thousands of people that's the crime now i can keep showing endlessly all these strangulations and murders and you know uh, other aspects of it but that will merely be you know what i would think would be uh you know they would be certainly thrilling but uh, I thought uh, that has already been done by other authors. So I want to deal with these other aspects.
0: And I think you have succeeded marvelously, at Siddharth. Uh, it, as I said, I think it's one of the best written books, you know, most well-written books. So Siddharth, I think before we wrap up, and and at the beginning of this conversation, uh, you said that there, there are a bunch of good non-fiction resources but if you had to recommend right for the listeners a couple of books right uh, whether it's fiction non-fiction but you think would be uh, interesting eye-opener around Indian history uh, which are a few books that you'd recommend uh,
1: which period because there's so many of them really good ones which period um okay colonial period this period
0: um, perhaps I think let's go with the colonial period, because uh, what if somebody finishes this and then they want to read like more adjoining fiction?
1: Yeah, yeah. So a very good introduction to the Orientalists, uh, including Wilson, but to a larger extent, uh, James Princep and William Jones. A very good introduction is is, uh, India Discovered, or is it Rediscovered? Uh, I need to check that, uh, by John Key. You know, John Key is, of course, a great historian, uh, a great teacher, but also a very, uh, very um, good writer. So, he, you know, he's, he's, uh, he's a rare bird that way. He's a great scholar, but he can also write very well. That one, then another book of his, uh, a history of the East India Company. It's called the Honorable Company. Both these books are quite popular in India. So I'm sure our readers have already, uh, you know, been through them. So the Honourable Company is a is a is a very detailed account of the East India Company till the beginning of the mid eighteenth century. So before their rise to prominence, so that period. Uh, then you have uh, you know th- this book on the orientalists. If you want to read up on the Faucigars, uh, further reading, there is of course Lehman's works. Uh, there's rambles and recollections of uh, of a British official. Uh, and uh, there is this translation of the language of the Thugs. It's called the Ramasiana. Uh, all of these are available in digitized form these days. So, you know, getting them is, is not really a problem. So, these are some of the books from that period which could give you a, a good, useful background on, uh, on uh, you know, both British officials and India of that period.
0: Lovely. And uh, I think the book is India Discovered by John Key.
1: India ah, Discovered, yeah.
0: Yeah, yeah. That's uh, for everyone wanting to look it up. It's, K- it's spelled as K-E-A-Y, not K-E-Y. So I just thought I'll let uh, this out so that in case somebody's Googling, they know what to look for. Siddharth, thank you so much for this lovely list of recommendations and in this very, very, um, you know, articulate and and I must say uh, inspiring conversation uh, because you've written in a way uh, with a, which is not just, you know, detailed or which just not seeks to do justice to uh, the subject matter I think that you were dealing with but I think you've tried really take a stand on on the way you wanted to do this in terms of how you portrayed characters and issues and I think that's commendable
1: thank you thank you very much Ayushi for this conversation I really enjoyed it I wish it could be a little longer
0: (laughs) thank you Siddharth and thank you everybody for listening in Siddharth's book Twilight in a Knotted World is available on Amazon, Flipkart. You can look it up on the Simon & Trusser website. It's also available at independent bookstores like Crossword and Barisens and other bookstores near you. Please grab a copy. Do read it. I um, As we discussed, it, it really can be read by people of any age group. And you must give this book a read because it's one of the most as I'm saying for the third time during this conversation, the well-written books I've read this year. Thank you, Sudhat. And thank you, everyone.
1: Thank you very much, Aishi. Thank you, everyone. And hope to see you guys again. Or hear you guys again.
0: Do not forget to tune in to us on Spotify, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Ghana, and HT Smartcasts.